This morning, we're going to read um, a passage of Scripture that might be familiar to you, but we're going to read it um, in the message translation. And so um, you're going to get to a point and you're going to think to yourself, is that really supposed to be there? And the answer is yes. So just read it and then I'll talk about it later. Okay, ready? Here we go. The real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry, filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. We couldn't carry this off by our own efforts, and we know it, even though we can list what many might think are impressive credentials. You know my pedigree, a legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church, a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I use to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung. There it is. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. For more than six decades now, 60 years, worship of the self has been the central preoccupation of our culture. Molding the self, investing in the self, expressing the self. Capitalism, meritocracy, and modern social science have normalized Selfishness. They've made it seem that the only human motives that are real are the self-interested ones. The desire for money, status, power. And the Bible says, that's a bunch of dog poop. (laughs) My name is Mark Foster, and I'm the founding senior pastor here, and I just said dog poop in church. Yes, I did. So... Um, I want to welcome everyone here um, today on this fall break uh, worship weekend. also want to welcome everybody on the live stream. Hey, everybody on the live stream, wherever you are, people traveling all over, um, you know, the planet, it seems like. And um, we want to welcome you to worship today. Now, the quote that I just read is not from some academic theologian, but from a real person living in the real world today. It comes from author David Brooks, this book, The Second Mountain. Well, everything but the dog poop part. That doesn't come from him. Uh, That's mine via Eugene Peterson, uh, via Paul, via the Greek word skabala. Now, Brooke goes on to say that our culture of the last 60 years has silently spread the message that things like giving and care and love are just icing on the cake of society. 
And when a whole society is built around self-preoccupation, its members become separated from one another, divided, alienated. And, and friends, for more than 20 years now, Chantel and I have been giving our lives, our very lives, to keep this from happening to us here in this place and the people known as Acts 2. And it's getting harder and harder as the culture becomes more and more tribal, more and more divided. Not about what people are known for, but what they're against. You see, friends, we have to be. The church of Jesus Christ is and must continue to be more than doing what's best for me and my family. But isn't that the culture we live in? People say, well, I had to. That's what was best for me and my family. As if there's no higher value than yourself or your family. I mean, I understand it. In Edmund, family is a god. It's its own god. It's its own rival to Christianity. So this is a super important question. And it can be super uncomfortable. So let me just let you get ready for it. Uh, If you'll take your sermon notes, it's at the very top of the page. What do you value most? Really? What do you value most? Where do you spend your time? Where do you send your resources? That's what you value most. Whatever that is. And there are three lives of society that come to all of us. Uh, This is this pulling of our hearts that we talked about last week. Um, And the first uh, life society is that the right job will make me happy. Isn't that true? I mean, I've sat and prayed with you all because you needed resources and you needed a job, and I prayed with you for that job. And within a year, you have been back telling me what a terrible job it was and how you can't believe how you took that job, and and can you help me pray for a different job? To which I'll always say, well, I can, but you're going to hate that one too. It's not about the job. It's about how you view the world, how you view yourself and your place in it and what's important to you. So... I'm not, now, you'll, you'll know this. This is, this is actually true. This is super hard for kids in their 20s. Now, I'll call them kids because I've got two kids in, in their 20s. Average American student or, or young person in their 20s will have seven jobs in their 20s. Seven different careers in their 20s because they're trying. They believe this. They actually believe this. And they try it, and then they try it again, and then they try it again, and then they try it again, and they try it again, and again, and again, and again, and again. All in one decade. Because they really, really believe it. I mean, haven't you thought that? If I could just find the right job. If I could just find the right job. And some people actually move past that. They're like, okay, well, that's probably not going to happen. I'll just make myself happy. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just do it myself. And, and the thing is, this happiness deal is so individualistic, isn't it? it, it have you, the question is, what makes you happy, isn't it? And we never ask the question, well, what makes for a happy society? What, what makes for a happy group? What makes for a happy nation? What, what, hap- what, what makes for a, a happy group of people? We don't ever ask that. It's, well, what makes you happy? And happiness comes and goes. Your football team wins, you're happy. Your football team loses, you're sad. But there's no joy in any of that. It's just fleeting, comes and it goes. And then perhaps most dogged of all is that achievements make people more valuable. And this is so ingrained in our culture that some of you absolutely believe this. And you're wondering what I'm doing even saying that it's possible that it doesn't. 
Because you know that we compensate people more for people who can do more. So doesn't that make them more valuable? That's a capitalist idea. It's not a Christian one. And those aren't necessarily opposed. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to hop into that mess. What, what I'm saying, though, is you are valuable because you are a child of God. You are created in God's image. That's what makes you valuable. And a child that's born without the ability to do anything for anyone is still valuable because they are created in the image of God. Grandparents know this, right? The baby's born, and you hold them, and you love them, and they're valuable. You don't look at that baby and go, well, you better be working on that 401k because grandpa needs a new car. I mean, right? I mean, they're valuable because they're valuable because they're valuable because they're created in the image of God. Achievements don't make us more valuable. And by the way, this particular lie is killing our children. You need to know that. Harvard Graduate School of Education asked this question. They asked 10,000 middle school kids and high school kids. They asked them this question. Do you think that your parents care more about your personal achievement or whether you're kind. Of the 10,000 6th through 12th grade students, 80% said their parents cared more about their achievements than about their character. Why don't you think about that? About what we're teaching our children and what this does to them. I don't know if you follow uh, reports as they come out, but on Thursday, uh, there was an alarming one. This isn't new for folks that like me who you know, who are actually been following this. Uh, but in the last decade, from 2007 to 2017, Americans aged 10 to 24, suicide rate rose by 56%. From 2000 to 2007, it had been flat. 56%. This is, not, this is an alarming number, friends. It's, it's not a degree or two. It's not 10. I mean, 56%. Because the things that our culture now values doesn't value our students who aren't ready to do things yet. You can't achieve, what are you worth? Nothing. Take your life. And they do. And they do. The world is desperate for what we know, what we live, what we have to offer. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of Christ that you are accepted, loved, forgiven, and set free. Not because of what you can earn, but because of who you are. In Jesus. Later on in this service, we are going to surround little Adeline with love and care. And we are going to say she is valuable. She is important. We love her because she's ours. She is God's. And through the church, she is ours and God's. And we will celebrate that. Not because of what she can do. I mean, she poops a little, you know. Um, Maybe, you know, she's cute. But she has to know. We have to know. We have to value her. Because who she is, not because of what she can do. Not because of what she can do. Friends, we live in a culture that teaches us to promote and advertise ourselves. And to master the skill required for success. But that gives little encouragement to humility or sympathy and honest self-confrontation. Which are all necessary for building character. I I think Brooks is exactly right about that. Um, I haven't finished the book, but I will tell you, it's, it's a good read. Um, 
David Brooks has been very helpful to me uh, in this season of life. Now, here's the thing. He wrote this, actually, um, in The Road to Character. This was the book that predates The Second Mountain. And David says that he wrote that book to save his own soul. I thought that was powerful. You see, on the first mountain, we all have to perform certain life tasks. We establish an identity. We separate from our parents. We cultivate our talents. We build a secure ego. And we try to make a mark in the world. People climbing the first mountain spend a lot of time thinking about reputation management. I used to have a boss that said, no, 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 no. Enough about me. What do you think of me? Just all about self. All about self. They're always keeping score. People on this first mountain, we ask questions like, well, how am I doing? Really, how am I doing in comparison to others? How do I measure up? And people on the first mountain really do think, I am what the world says I am. Nothing more. And sometimes nothing less. First mountain goals are the normal stuff of life. Nice home, nice family, nice vacations, good friends, good food. But some people get to the top of this first mountain and realize, is this all there is? This can happen to you at any age. For me, it happened at 24 when I worked as an executive producer for NBC television. I had skyrocketed in my career, and I saw my goal. It was not worth having. I wanted to want things that are truly worth wanting. Isn't that true? Don't you actually want to want something that's worth wanting? So often we, our goals are so low that we achieve them and then we're depressed. What's next? You see, friends, say this with me. It's never too early or too late to get kicked off your first mountain. Just give it up. You can do that as a young person. You can do that as an old person. But just it's never too early or too late. Just get off that first mountain. Let's go to our calling. And our calling here at Acts 2 and as Christians is to move from a self-centered life to an other-centered life. That's what Christianity is all about. When Jesus came from heaven to earth, he didn't say, look at me, look at me, look at me. He washed feet. He fed the hungry. He healed the lame, the sick, the blind, the deaf. He served. God himself. Yes, our calling is from self-centered to other-centered. But you can't do that, friends, keeping your options open. Man, I hate that. When I was younger, I mean, I tried to live like that. But you just got to know that is a fool's game. And I hear it all the time. Well, you know, I'm just trying to keep my options open. Just keep my, I'm just looking for something better. Can you imagine the smackdown you'd get from your spouse if every time you went out, you, you know, you dropped their hand when somebody good looking came by? You're like, I'm just keep my options open. Does not work. Does not work. Doesn't work in life at all. We have to plant ourselves down right where we are. And you want you to think, if, if, when you get to be in your 50s, like I am, you think about the great things of your life. They all happen for the things that you're committed to, where you've planted yourself down, where you say, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the next step is, but this is where I stand. And beautiful things happen then, wherever that is, with your children, 
with your spouse, with your deep, good, and long-lasting friends. had the opportunity to, to be with a friend of mine that I've known for 32 years last night. Now, you know how good that is when you sit down with a friend that you've known for multiple decades. I pray that you know that. Because it's not like the people you met last week. Right? They know who you really are. They know your soul. They knew who you were before you were somebody. And they know how dumb you can be. And it's glorious. It's glorious. You have to plant yourself down. And around here, we sing God's praises. Say that with me. We sing God's praises. And we don't say, well... How was your week? Was it good enough to sing God's praises? No, we sing God's praises. It doesn't matter what kind of week you had. We sing God's praises. That's what we do here. And what you may or may not know is that our church was started on Saturday nights. We were a Saturday night venue for basically the first year. We started on August 28, 1999. And you today are continuing that tradition. You, I would want you to know that we've said this every week, and we mean it. We are people who sing God's praises. We serve God's children. We're doing it right now. Megan's doing that over in the other building. And we share his salvation, that Christ is the Savior of the world for all time and all places. And we do that every week regardless of what's going on in the world. And so from August 28th to today, you are now in the 1,052nd week of consecutive singing God's praises, serving God's children, and sharing Christ's salvation till he comes again. 1,052 weeks in a row. We have not missed. We do not miss for rain, sleet, snow, ice, tornadoes. We watch, but we don't leave. And that's us. It's what we do. And there's power in that. There's power in that. Now, I haven't been here all 1,052 weeks, but somebody has. Somebody has represented Christ on this corner of Edmond for 20 years, 1,052 times. And if you come back next week, it'll be 1,053. And that, those are just weeks, friends. Those aren't services. We'll have three services this week. You think about the power of that, generation to generation, person to person, time after time. That second mountain stuff. And, and David Brooks actually puts it pretty hauntingly, and he's exactly right. Friends, if you are uncommitted, you are unremembered. You ever remember that person that, you know, you hung out with for three days, was on your staff for three weeks, no. No. If you are uncommitted, you're unremembered. Your life just goes on by as vapor. You've got to plant yourself down if you want to do something significant with your life. This is the way it is. You've got to commit to something. And, I, and Chantel and I want you to know um, that we're committed here. This is our place. We've been here two decades. Uh, when my colleagues, um, you know, this happens when you go to like collegial events they'll say oh yeah and how long you've been in your appointment and somebody'll say you know three four years five years ten years whatever then they say how about you and i'm like 21 years and they're like what 21 years like that if you're not methodist you don't get this but if you're methodist you're like what it'd be like somebody in the the military going how long you've been at your station they're like 20 years like no 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 wait that doesn't happen that doesn't happen what god is doing here is incredible and powerful And part of that comes because of the commitment of its people to be here each week. Unless you're sick or out of town, singing God's praises, serving God's children, and sharing in that salvation. And uh, I I see some people here have been with me most of those thousand weeks, and I love that. It's powerful. The second thing is, is really to create courageous space from which to launch adventures. Now, you'll hear safe space in the culture, but I don't believe in safe space. I don't think there is one. When you think you're in a safe space, somebody will come knock you on your head, and you're thinking, well, dang, there is no safe space. That's right, there's not. But there is courageous space. 
And this is a courageous space. And it is from this courageous space that in December we will plant our 25th water well into the world, saving tens of thousands of people who were dying of waterborne illness. Our 25th well. But that only happens out of courageous space. Where people say, I think I want to go. And we say, yes, we'll figure it out. Yes, we will send you. Yes, we will cover you with insurance. Yes, if you get kidnapped, we will extract you. We don't talk about that much because it's scary. But, but, you know, that courageous space. Courageous space. That's who we are. But notice you have to move from self to other to get there. There's no such thing as courageous space about looking at yourself and how to promote yourself. That's not courageous. It's just more selfishness. And it gets us nowhere. So we serve God's children. That's what we do. Now, when I say serve God's children, we often think of the little ones. And and that's true. We do that. But it's more than that. For example, if you work in a company and you're on your second mountain, you no longer see yourself as a manager, but as a mentor. Your life now, rather than moving up, is about helping others move up. You're dedicated now to helping others grow. And this can be true in any job, in any job. In their book, Practical Wisdom, psychologist Barry Schwartz and political scientist Kenneth Sharp, they tell a story about a janitor who worked in a hospital. His name was Luke. And in the hospital where Luke worked, there was a young man who had gotten into a fight and was now in a coma, and he wasn't coming out. Every day his father sat by his side in silent vigil and had done so for six months. Every day. And one day Luke came in and cleaned the young man's room, and his father wasn't there. He was out getting a smoke. And later that day, Luke ran into the father in the hallway, and the father was not happy. He snapped at Luke and accused him of not cleaning his son's room. Now, when you think about which mountain you're on, the first mountain response is to see your job as cleaning rooms. And you would say, well, I did clean your son's room. And you'd know that if you weren't out smoking. But the second mountain response is to see your job as serving patients and their families. It is to meet their needs at a time of crisis. It's to become aware that this man needs comfort, not criticism. And so you clean the room again. That's what Luke did. Luke said, I cleaned it so that he could see me cleaning it. I can understand how he could be. It was like six months that his son was there. He'd been a little frustrated. So I cleaned it again. But I wasn't angry with him. I guess I could understand. Friends, the second mountain is about shedding ego and losing the self. You conquer your first mountain, but you are conquered by your second mountain. You see, friends, when we make generosity part of our daily routine, we refashion who we are. We can actually change who we are and who we're becoming. We do have choice about this. Your destiny is not set about what kind of character you will have. It is something that you work on day in and day out. And when you choose kindness over self, you begin to refashion, remold, remake who you are. You allow God to come in and work in ways bigger than you think of of yourself. We refashion who we are. You see, good character, friends, is a byproduct of giving yourself away. That's how Brooks puts it. Your character actually comes... By doing the right thing, choosing it over and over and over again. What you choose today actually becomes your life. The third thing we do here as our calling 
And, and this, is, this is hard because people in our culture don't like to do this. But we suffer well together. We suffer well together. And it's so important, friends, because pain that's not transformed gets transmitted. Think about that. Some of the most dangerous people that I know are people who are hurting and won't say that they're hurting. Because when it doesn't get transformed, it gets transmitted to others and others and others and others. And it just works its way around. And so the role of the church is to rejoice with those who rejoice. And to weep with those who weep. And to really weep. And to really rejoice. It is a holy and sacred task. And here's the thing about suffering, friends. I would, I would, like, I would like to say that I'm going to give this sermon and some of you are going to say, you know what? I think I'm just going to be a second mountain person. That doesn't happen. It just doesn't. There's two ways that people become second mountain people. Not because they heard a good talk. I mean, that's very rare. I'm assuming that I'm going to give a good talk. <laughs> Hang in there. That's my first mountain. <laughs> so, <clears throat> here we go. Two ways you get to your second mountain. It's pain and joy. And some people in their pain and their suffering are just broken and bitter. And Brooke says others are broken open. Sometimes in our suffering, it actually tenderizes us. It changes us. It gives us compassion and empathy and life and a calling because we know what that pain is like and we want to redeem that pain. We want to be a part of God's redemption of that. And we share God's salvation. And that's joy. That's joy, friends. It's absolute joy. We all have a choice to make. Are we going to live a life for self? Or are we going to live a life lived as a gift for others? And again, intellectually, you're like, I don't know. I mean, self's pretty good. You know, I, I get to do these things for myself. But here's the thing. This joy thing that I was referencing just a second ago, you, you know where I see this? I'll tell you in just a second. Because I've, I've seen this with my own eyes. There's a man, and he's hard. And he's on time, he works early, and he stays late. He's hard with his people, he's hard with his family, he's hard with his friends, and he works, and he works, and he works, and he provides, and his second mountain gets higher, and his first mountain gets higher and higher and higher. And, and everybody thinks, well, that, that guy's just yuck. We just don't, you know, just don't mess with him. He's, he's yuck. And then, you know what happens? A grandbaby. And everything that he's worked for, everything he thought was important is skabala. It's dog poop. He doesn't care. The day that he was at his work, now he's not there anymore because he's at his granddaughter's birthday party, putting on a hat and blowing a horn and eating cake. You're like, who is this guy? What happened? Like, is he on drugs? What happened? Completely different. Night and day. Pain and joy gets you to your second mountain because it's about love. And so we have to ask, are we going to live our life, live for self, or are we going to live a life as a gift for others? But friends, it's hard to live your life as a gift of others if you don't love something. You have to love it to want to gift it. And we do this by creating a culture of vulnerability, of actually saying, yes, that hurt my feelings. Yes, I have cancer. Yes, I need help. Yes, I'm struggling. Or yes, I'm really joyful, but I'm afraid to share it with anybody because everybody else looks depressed and I think they're going to shoot me. That happens too. And friends, church has to be a place 
of vulnerability where we can really be who we are. We have to take our masks off so we can be known and know others. Brooks calls this difference of, of actually getting to this point, the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Now, I've been a lot to a lot of funerals. Can you believe that? More, more than most, I would say. And I'm struck by the comments of loved ones and friends in, in more than 25 years of ministry to hear friends and family talk about how much they appreciated the deceased 401k. That never happens. About how, how they just love that their dad spent extra hours at the office. Or how their mom worked so hard to provide the family a hot tub. Or the really nice vehicles they gave their kids. Or their degrees. You know, I just loved it that my grandpa had a doctorate in environmental science. Or their certifications, or even the size house that they lived in together. It's, it, you just never hear that. That's all First Mountain stuff. And, and it's all well and good until it's all said and done, and then it's not worth anything. Paul got that straight. Eulogy virtues, on the other hand, are the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things. When we get vulnerable and we actually share about who somebody really is. And what's really interesting to me is that somehow we're afraid to even say those out into the world. Because when you look at obituaries, they're largely still First Mountain stuff. They worked here, they did that, they retired here. Isn't that true? So to the world out there, we still do First Mountain stuff. And we say, isn't that important? And then when we get in here, we say, you know what really touched my heart was the eulogy virtues. It's a weird culture we live in these days. It requires vulnerability if we want real relationships. And here's the thing. Um, I heard Louis Giglio say this. He said, never watch a sunset with a meteorologist. <laughs> and, and what I think he meant by that is this, that our strongest witness is simply to share what God has done for us. Not to argue with somebody at your work about some minute biblical detail. Nobody cares about that. It's not changing anybody's life. But you start telling somebody about what God's done for you, how he's lifted you up, how he's saved you, how he's helped you, how he's saved your children, how he's blessed your family, how he's changed your marriage, how he's changed your life. That will change a life. None of the other nonsense of the first mountain stuff of the world. And so what what does the Bible say about all this? Well, for this, we're going to write... Uh, look at the letter of joy from Paul. Uh, he writes this uh, while in prison. Isn't that interesting? That he's writing of his joy in the Lord, his strength in the Lord, his appreciation for his people while he's in prison. His suffering has not broken him. It has broken him open with the gospel and the good news of Christ. And he says this. I, he says, I thank God every time I remember you in prison. He's constantly praying with joy, with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And this is my prayer, he says, that you, your love may overflow more and more with the knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best. So that in the day of Christ, because Christ is coming, that you may be found pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of rightness, righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. This, this is what Paul writes of joy because he's met God himself. Paul writes of joy which transcends self and circumstance. I want you to think about people in your own life. And you might even, if you're really brave, ask yourself which kind of people you are. I have people in my life that it doesn't matter what day it is, I already know what kind of day they're having. 
Isn't that true? I know that there are some people that when they walk into my life, it doesn't matter whether I'm seeing them in the hospital or at Disney World, they're going to have a good day. And I know other people, whether I see them in the hospital or at Disney World, they're still having a bad day. These strollers, they don't roll right. And whatever it is. You see? Joy transcends self and circumstance. And the way you do that is by serving others as better than yourself. It's how Christ did it. It's how Paul did it. It's how we do it. We serve others on our second mountain. He says, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition, none of it, or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself. God himself humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of the cross. Which is why we hold it here. And if Jesus, who was God, can serve others, so can we. You're never more like Jesus than when you're serving someone who cannot pay you back. And here's what Paul found, what I found, what I pray you know, and if you don't know it yet, that you will find as well, that whatever the world offers, living for Christ is the highest value. It is the surpassing value. It is the best value. There is nothing in all the world, in heaven, on earth, below the earth, that compares to Jesus. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, King of kings, Lord of lords, name above all names. Everything else in your world will pass away. But you will see Jesus face to face for all time. And so this is what Paul says. He says, whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as loss, as rubbish, because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value, the highest value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. No, he had tried that. He tried to be religious. It didn't work. But one that comes through faith in a real personal relationship with Jesus, the rightness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. Now, that is a hard line. We still have brothers and sisters around the world right now living that out. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, now I haven't already attained it or reached the goal, but I press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because Christ first loved us, we love others. So I want to challenge you today, in your pain or in your joy, to do something hard. Not something weak. Not something easy. Not something you can do with a remote Something hard, worthy of the hardness. Be bold, be courageous. Say, Lord, show me something hard that you need done in your world and use me. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Use me. Do something hard, worthy of the hardness. Plant yourself down, be courageous, and do it with all that you are. And watch heaven come to earth. Something hard, something worthy of your fullness of how God's made you, using every ounce of your goodness and talent and power and strength that comes from heaven. So, 
You say, well, wow, that's kind of a big ass, Pastor Mark. Yes, you just thought this was about a tithe. It's not. It's much bigger than that. It's about your whole life. All of it. So when has your life felt fullest, most meaningful, most complete? Write that down. Because that's normally where God wants to work with you. And that joy. And then do it. Do it. Whatever that is. Whatever that sweet spot, that green light, wherever that is. Where would God use that to redeem this world? And then ask the bold question. Lord, what would you have me do with all that you've provided? With my intellect, with my heart, with my time, with my talents, with my family, with my resources. Whatever it is, Lord. Whatever you want. Do. Do it, Lord. Now, this is what I mean by that. I'm, I'm closing with this story. There was a woman named Mary Gordon. And somehow, she was led to found a group called Roots of Empathy. And she wrote about this project. What they would do is they would bring kids in, young people, and they would gather them around so that they could learn empathy from infants. And they would watch these infants because they needed to teach empathy to the young. And they would watch the infant try to crawl, and they would try to reach for something, a toy or whatever it was. And the children were learning to put themselves in the mind of the baby. Because the more separated we are from one another, the harder and more cold and less empathetic our society is becoming. They wanted the children to learn emotional literacy and learning what deep attachment looks like. And one day there was a class with an eighth grade boy that she calls Darren. And Darren had had a hard life. He had watched his mother's murder when he was four when he was put into foster care. Now, he was bigger than everybody else because he had been held back by two grades. And one day, to everybody's surprise, Darren wanted to hold the baby. And the mother of the baby was very nervous. But she let him. And lo and behold, Darren was great with the baby. And he went over to a quiet corner and rocked the baby while the baby snuggled in his chest. And then Darren very gently returned the baby to his mother and he asked her innocently if nobody has ever loved you do you think you could still be a good father there it was a community a courageous community a bold community a vulnerable community creating pathways to miracles. You see, the things God calls us to are much bigger than just the little religious stuff that we talk about from time to time. It is an actual changing of the world. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your call in our lives. We thank you for calling us, lifting us up, moving us out, blessing the world by the blessing you've placed in us. And we ask, Lord, now that you would put us in contact with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want. That we would sing your praises, serve your children wherever we might find them. And share your goodness, your salvation until you come again. In Jesus' mighty and wonderful name who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.